Thank you so much. It is an honor to be here, and what a way to start Sunday morning with that kind of worship. Do you love your church, and do you love your worship team? Absolutely. Absolutely, and I do as well. Elizabeth and I and the, and the boys, we moved here uh, first of September uh, last year, and have just had a ball, and um, this was one of the first churches that we visited. That's my role, going around to different churches, checking with them and doing what we can to assist because we serve the local church. The, we, don't, we don't tell them what to do. Uh, we don't uh, try to push resources. We just say, what is the need? And then we bend over backwards to make it happen. So it's, a, it's an honor to be here. And I tell you, your pastor, Craig, is one of my closest friends here in Georgia. He's one of the first people that I met. We're in a discipleship group together early on Thursday mornings trying to finish this task well that God's given us to give the gospel to the world and make mature believers from there. But I tell you, have y'all heard the, how uh, Craig and Caroline first met? Because you need to know this. He probably didn't tell you the story. So Craig, you know, he uh, hadn't always been that stud of a man that he is now. <laughs> that good-looking, strapping, athletic guy that he is. Well, when he was in college, he had a hard time getting a date. I know that's hard for you to understand, hard for you to imagine. But he had a hard time getting a date. So his buddy called him one day and he said, he said, Craig, I've got the girl for you. If you'll go on a blind date, my girlfriend has a friend and you go up with her, I'm telling you, she's the best looking thing you've ever seen in your life. He said, well, okay, I'll do that. So they convinced both of them to go on this blind date. He called, they set it up. So on that Friday, he's going to pick her up, uh, go to the house at 5 o'clock. Now, in her family, you don't get to go out on a date until you come for family dinner. And you sit around the table, and mom and dad get to know you, and that's how you gain permission to go out on a date. Well, he, uh, just getting ready for that, he decides to go down to the corner store to the pharmacy. So he goes down there and comes up to the pharmacist, and he has a, a three-pound box of chocolate, a two-pound box of chocolate, and a one-pound box of chocolate. Well, that uh, pharmacist saw that, and he said, well, young man, that's, that's good. He's checking him out. He said, well, I got to tell you, what are you doing with all of this chocolate? He said, oh, I'm going out with what I'm told is the best-looking girl in town. He said, if I get to put my arm around her, then I'm going to give her that one-pound box of chocolate. If I get to hold her hand, she's going to get that two-pound box of chocolate. But if I get to give her a kiss on the cheek, she's going to get that three-pound box of chocolate. Well, the pharmacist, having a, a young college-age daughter of his own, wasn't real impressed. He said, son, you probably just need to be on your way. So Craig leaves, shows up at her house, knocks on the door, mom opens the door, and there comes Caroline coming down those stairs, just like that artificial wind blowing in her hair. Best looking thing he had ever seen, his knees start to shake, his, his voice is trembling, talking to her mother. Well, they go into the dining room, they're sitting there waiting for dad to get home from work. Eventually, dad walks through the door and he sees Craig sitting at the table, pauses for a moment, sits down, he said, well, I guess it's time for supper, Craig, would you ask the blessing? And Craig prayed the most flowery, beautiful prayer, the dogs and the fishes and the cats and everything you can imagine. He prayed and finally said, amen. Caroline looked at Craig and said, I didn't know you were so spiritual. Craig looked at Caroline and said, I didn't know your daddy was the pharmacist. <laughs> now listen, listen, I don't just report the news, I make it up, Amen. Well, you need to know that about your pastor. I do love Craig. I'm so grateful to be here. Turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. What I want to share with you, this message is called Leaving Lesser Things 
for greater gain. Leaving lesser things for greater gain. And what I'm going to show you is there's a, there's a passage of Scripture, and you've read this many times, but it's the key to long-term Christian maturity. So listen closely because we've, we've made some mistakes in the last several decades in the local church where we've made the purpose of church is to come for a Sunday morning assembly or the purpose of the church to be a, a Sunday school class or the purpose is a home group. And we've gotten this whole thing mixed up because the purpose of the church, when we look at Matthew 28 and we look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the purpose of the church is to make disciples who multiply. It's to, and what I say, my language is make disciple makers that glorify the Lord. And if we don't do that, friend, we're going to lose, and that's what you're seeing right now. In our culture is we're losing the battle for the souls of our men and our women, our boys and our girls. We're losing that battle. But we're getting back to it. We're changing the tide. Turn with me, John chapter 15. We'll start reading in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I'm reading from the New King James Version, by the way. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. I want you to notice as we go through here how many times he uses the word abide. Because when you see something repetitive in Scripture, it's for a point. They're making a point. This is to emphasize that concept. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By his Father, um, by this my Father is glorified and that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. Listen, being a Christ follower doesn't cost much. It'll cost you everything. And we have lost this concept in many of our local churches. We have made becoming a Christian easy. And the choice to follow Christ is it's not a specific prayer you have to pray. It isn't a hard concept to understand. That, that initial conversation, that initial prayer to ask Jesus to save you isn't hard. But you need to know the life of a maturing disciple will cost you everything. It is an all-in Concept, And that's what my family's been living since I moved here to Georgia. And I'll share some details about that in just a moment. But let's work through this passage. Because Jesus said, he said, I am the vine, which means that he is the life giver. He is the conduit by which the, the life-giving source gets to those branches and then eventually to that fruit. And if you detach from that vine, you're detaching yourself from the one who's giving you that life source. You can't detach from that. I speak in conferences all over the nation, and, and I have yet to hear a major conference speaker stand in front of the people and say, it is your task to spend time with Jesus in his word every single day. 
Why? Because most leaders aren't doing it. Most leaders and even most pastors are spending time in the word to give you a word from God, but it's not feeding their own soul. And what we're seeing from these men of God who are standing in front of all of these hundreds of thousands of people is that they're withering on the vine because the very life source that they need, they're not plugged into it. They're preaching, preparing for a sermon to give to you rather than it coming from the overflow that's happening in their own spirit. Well, it says God is the vine dresser. He's the one who is daily pruning the branches so much that after decades of pruning, he knows intimately every plant, every branch that's there because he's pruned it. And why do we prune the branch? It's to make the fruit more enjoyable, to have bigger fruit, to more luscious fruit. And we know that because he's the master of the vineyard. Now, I want you to notice something here. When you work through this passage of Scripture, there are four levels of fruit that's represented here. You have no fruit. This is that believer that is self-professed believer. It may be that false convert that's in the church that's not displaying fruit. He's not plugged into the vine. He's not going through that, not gaining that life source. And then we have fruit. So you have no fruit, you have fruit. This is the believers who's accomplishing marginal results. They're checking the boxes. I showed up for church. I'm super Christian because I went to Sunday school and I went to church. But they're checking the boxes. But there's not great fruit, there's just marginal. And then there's more fruit listed here. Now this is the believer where you can start to see that it's making a difference in their life. This is the one that you say, man, that's a great dad because of the way he's raising his kids to love Jesus. But here's where we want to get to. And this is the fourth level of fruit bearing. It's not no fruit, it's not fruit, it's not more fruit. The scripture here talks about much fruit. It's an overflow of fruit. It is the Christian who is spending time with the Lord every single day where he's the first thing in the morning when he wakes up is God's word on his heart. The last thing on his mind before he goes to sleep is God's word. When he's talking in his business, when he's at the gas station, when he's at the grocery store, and when he's at the ball game, he's talking about what he's learned in the word of God. And he's building relationship, intentional relationships with people so that they can know Jesus as their savior. But listen, we can't leave it there. In our lifetime, we've emphasized evangelism so much that we haven't moved them to spiritual maturity. And we have raised up generation after generation of Christians who know Jesus with their head. They've made a decision with their heart, but they haven't learned to walk with him. That is a failure of the local church. Praise God for a pastor and staff like what you have here who know that it's not just about evangelism that you've got to get those people into intentional relationships and then move them intentionally and strategically towards spiritual maturity. And that's where the fruit multiplies. Well, there's four levels of fruit here. God prunes the good to get to the great. And we know that Christians are the branch, and the branch can only produce as much as the vine provides. But much of what we see in America right now lacks this power. I'm reading a book by Craig Etheridge right now. And he said, from 1990 to 2000, the combined membership of American churches declined by 5 million people. In one decade, the membership of American churches declined by 5 million people while the population grew by 24 million. That's losing, friends. He mentioned this as well. 
He said that U.S. is now number three behind China and India in the number of people who are not professing Christians. Of all the countries of the world, U.S. is number three. You know what that means? We are becoming an unreached people group. We are becoming the nation that folks are sending to America to evangelize our community, our sons and our daughters, because the local church in general, not this one, but in general, aren't fulfilling the task that God gave us to make disciple makers to the ends of the earth. And I'm just telling you, that's what I've given my life for. I left what had been called the sweetest church, the most healthy church in Louisiana, that it grew from 250 to over 1,000 during the time that Gavin and I were there, the lead pastor. And uh, my parents are there, her parents, my wife's parents are there, our brothers and sisters are there, nieces and nephews, a lifetime of relationships. The reason I'm in Georgia is not to be a part of anything mediocre. I am here to change the culture and the dynamics of what are happening in the local churches, not just in Georgia, because if you didn't know, your convention here in Georgia is the bell cow convention for the rest of the nation. The things that are done here, the decisions that are made here, ripple effect out to every other convention throughout the nation. That's why I'm here, to be a part of something that changes the world so that my sons and my daughter have a world to grow up in, and they know that it's not just about coming to church and checking a box, but loving Jesus with all their heart and making disciples who multiply out. Well, see, the problem is we've lost or forgotten our intended purpose to make disciples, and we've been stuck in that for decades. Maybe, maybe I can illustrate this to you, how we have gotten into a, a rut. And sometimes we do things in the local church. Would you agree that sometimes we do things in the local church because we've always done that? And we really have gotten to a point where we forgot why we even did it in the first place. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. The United States Railway, railway Gauge. You know what that is? The U.S. Railway Gauge is the distance between the tracks. It's four, and four feet, eight and a half inches. That's the, the average distance there. Do you know how we got that? I'm not making this up. I can give you the stats of where I got it. They got this because this was the standard used in England, and it was the expatriates from England who came to America and used the same jigs and tools to make our railway system. You know why they did that in England? Because a 1,000 years before, the Roman imperial war chariots were the only chariots there were. And they made grooves in the ground that were four feet, eight and a half inches. That's why we have. So our transportation system, our railway is built because of something that happened a thousand years before and nobody just decided to ever change the system. But do you know why the, the Roman royal imperial chariots were that way? They did it that way because as they were fighting these wars, they had created these ruts, and they had to have those wagons in there, or their, and they had to create a system, or they would break apart if they hit another rut. So they made a standard, and that's the way it was. Well, the reason they did it was because that was the width of the rear end of two horses. So our United States railway gauge of four feet, eight and a half inches is that way because that's the width of two horses' rear ends. I hope you can see where I'm going with this. And by the way, an interesting note, the rocket boosters for the most sophisticated transportation system in the world 
at Cape Canaveral, if you've ever seen the space shuttle launched, they preferred to make them wider, but they were shipped in on a railway, and they could only make them a little wider than four feet, eight and a half inches to go through the tunnels to get them to Cape Canaveral. So the major design feature of the most sophisticated transportation system in the world is literally determined by the width of two horses' rear ends. We can't live in a world where we do things because we've always done that. We have got to figure out what is the biblical mandate of God and live that out. Listen, I have a, a phrase that's, that my whole team knows. Don't be married to anything but your spouse. Everything else has got to be up to discussion and we got to figure this thing out because we are losing the battle. And we see in, let's focus on verse 2 for a second. See, the branch does not bear much fruit. It takes away. One of the scariest verses in the Bible is this in verse 2 here. That if you're not bearing much fruit, it takes away. Because one of the questions that I used to get from teenagers said, Brother Scott, does that mean that if I'm not doing well, if I'm not bearing fruit, that God will kill me and take me home? And I just have to tell them, I said, I can't tell you God's going to kill you and take you home if you're disobedient. I can only answer this from the scripture. The Bible says that there's consequences for disobedience. The Bible also says that God is long-suffering. And praise God that he is. Because if I were God, I'd have been wiped you all out a long time ago. Right? Because we're a messed up people and we make poor decisions. But God is long-suffering. But I do look in people's eyes and tell them, I also believe that there's a point when a believer has consciously lived beyond the borders, the boundaries that God has set for them. They have continued to live on disobedience. I do believe there's a line that God will draw and say, okay, you want to live long-term in disobedience, I believe there's a moment where he'll pull back his hand of protection and providence and guidance and say, let's see how you do. I believe that is one of the most scary moments in a believer's life. If you've got to live this life in this world without the God of all creation breathing life into you and protecting you and giving you guidance on where to go and how to raise our kids and how to love our spouse, you don't want to walk down that road. Listen, the fruit tree has one task. And what is that? One task. The fruit tree has one task to do. What is it? It's to produce fruit. Listen, believer, you've got a task, and that task is to produce fruit, and part of that fruit is to see people saved and move them to spiritual maturity. If we're not doing that, you cannot check the box and say that you are faithful as a believer. Some of us showed up in this place this morning because you believe that being here is going to help you with your business, and that may be true. Some of you showed up because you want your children to grow up to be moral individuals. And being here probably will help you with that. Some of you showed up in here because you need a date. And God help you. This is a great place for that to happen. But that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to make disciple makers that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and then reinvest the gospel seed that was shared with them. That's what has to happen. But it's not happening in most of our churches. We're walking. Matter of fact, you know what happened in most churches last week? In the typical Baptist church last week, all week long, the pastor cooked up a sermon 
Man, he simmered on that sermon. He threw in the vegetables and the meat, and he cooked up this incredible meal to feed the body of Christ. And last Sunday, you know what most church members did? They walked into this, to their sanctuary, and they sniffed what their pap- pastor had been cooking all week long. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you ever got full sniffing a meal? It doesn't happen. The only person who gets fed, the only person who gets discipled and is moved towards spiritual maturity in that process is the pastor, the staff, the one who's chewing on the scriptures and asking the hard questions and God, would you fill me with this message first before I stand to speak it out there? He's the only one being multiplied, who's growing, or a Sunday school teacher who prepares all week long to share the Word of God, or a life group leader. They're being uh, matured as a believer. And if you'd be honest, when you guys go back to Sunday school, if you'd be honest, most of you are going to show up in that Sunday school class and you don't know what the lesson's going to be about. You are depending on your Sunday school teacher to cook up a meal all week long, and you're just hoping to glean some nuggets from all of his or her work. Now you show me a single place in the scripture where that's biblical. You should read the word of God every day. You should pray. You should be engaged with that, chewing on that, so that when you show up in this place, there is an explosion of overflow. And then Will doesn't have to stand up here and do a dog and pony show to get you fired up. He should be, hey, let's calm down just a little bit. Listen, I can't even hear the music. Y'all are so loud. That's what ought to happen in here. But it doesn't in the typical Baptist church. Verses 4 through 8 is the key, is the secret to long-term fruit-bearing Christian maturity. And it is this word, abide. You see, that word literally means to remain or to stay in. That's what it means. That's the key. It's trusting Christ to meet all of your needs and to make him your treasure. And I'll be honest with you, friends. My definition of treasure has changed in the last 10 months. You see, when I was in Louisiana, I prayed that prayer because I was studying on on this word abide. And I said, God, I want to abide. I want to stay in Louisiana. I love this place. This is where I was born. If you can see my socks, I'm purple and gold through and through, right? Go Tigers. You can't understand the guy, but we love him. Listen, that's not, you know when I prayed that prayer and being being facetious, God said to me, he said, that's great, but that's not what the word means. The word means abide in Christ, not in your selfish motives or desires. You see, I was on the phone with Mark Marshall, my boss, and he called to ask me if I'd come to Georgia to oversee discipleship for 1.4 million people in 3,600 Baptist churches. I said, absolutely not. I said, man, I'm in the middle of building my forever home on a forever piece of property, 128 acres that backs up to several thousand acres of federal land that has no public access, which means that my family property hunts forever. I could walk for days and not see a person. And as an outdoorsman, a hunter, a fisher, that's the best there is. I mean, you don't ever even see property like that anymore. And I'd spent 
Two years developing plans, 125 hours on a track hoe, ripping out trees, putting in a 1,400-foot road so nobody could even see the house on a giant hill in the middle of a swamp. So when he asked me that, I said, absolutely not. I'm in the sweetest church. Growth. And because of the disciple-making strategy we've implemented at that church, people are calling. I'm speaking at conferences all over the nation. Why would I come to Georgia? While we're having this conversation, the Lord brought back a prayer to my mind that I had prayed in 2012 when I was finishing my doctoral work. And I said, Lord, would you give me a disciple-making strategy that works at First Baptist Halton but would be transferable anywhere in the country. And he brought that prayer back to my mind while I'm talking to Mark on the phone. And I literally, I was sitting at the Taco Bell, right, the Mill of Champions, and he asked that, and the Lord brings that prayer to my mind, and I went, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> because... I was comfortable where I was. I wanted to retire right there in that house. I was preparing a place where my grandkids could come. But that wasn't the Lord's plan. Listen, I'm going to close out with three ideas of what an abiding disciple looks like. If you've got a pen or piece of paper, I want you to write this down, or you can get some mascara and write it on the back of your neighbor's neck, whatever you need to do. But I want you to remember this. First is this, an abiding disciple Remember, this is the key to long-term spiritual maturity. An abiding disciple has experienced a genuine conversion. You see, in the world we live in, we've made it easy. But you need to know this, that when you trust Jesus as Savior, it's all in. You're surrendering to them. And there are three people here today or watching by broadcast. There's the unbeliever. You're lost. Or maybe you're in this church and you think you're saved, but you're a false convert because you uh, never trusted Jesus genuinely as Savior. There's the second group that's the consumer Christian. Did you know in the Southern Baptist Convention, we have baptized 7.1 million people in the last 20 years? 7.1 million people baptized in the Southern Baptist Convention in the last 20 years and zero increase in attendance. We failed at the task the Lord gave us to make disciples. It's not just about evangelism. It's moving them along. So we have the unbeliever. We have the consumer Christian who's joined the church based on what he can get, not based on what he can give. And then the third is the faithful, committed disciple in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And listen, that's where I was a large, large part of my life until God called me to ministry and over a two-year period just rearranged everything in my life until I gave all in. Here's what I want you to know. This person who's experienced this genuine conversion, a converted life brings peace. And in the storm that we're in right now, when you look at pandemic and you look at riots and you look at failed businesses and failed marriages and children that are going a course that we never thought that they would go, what in the world, how can we handle that? A converted life brings peace. A converted life also brings pain. I want you to know this. The blood of Jesus doesn't run away. It flows in power. It will sustain you. It will guide you. It will help you through all of the pain, through all of the storms that are come your way. But you need to know this, 
that the enemy doesn't play fair. He's going to come after you. He's going to come after the weak link in your life. He's going to come after uh, your children. He's going to come after your spouse. The enemy doesn't play fair. It's like the army-based staff that was planning war games. And obviously, they didn't want to use live ammunitions. So they uh, informed their men. In place of the rifle, you're going to say bang, bang. In place of the knife, you're going to say stab, stab. In place of a grenade, you're going to say lob, lob. Well, the start of the war games are in progress. One of the soldiers saw the enemy, and he jumps up and says, bang, bang. God didn't do anything. He said, stab, stab. God didn't do anything. He said, lob, lob. The guy didn't do anything. He got so frustrated. He said, listen, I know they do some mock games, but you got to follow the rules. I, I said, bang, bang, you didn't do anything. I said, stab, stab, you didn't do anything. I said, lob, lob, you didn't do anything. He said, what's your deal, man? His enemy looked at him and said, rumble, rumble, I'm a tank. Listen, that's the way the world plays with us. The enemy doesn't play fair. He has a whole separate set of rules, which means he don't have any. You've got to understand that, and you live the life of integrity that God has called you to live. Listen, an abiding disciple has experienced a genuine conversion, and it is producing fruit. If you've never seen fruit in your life, then you've got to ask the question, have I ever genuinely been saved? And when you lay your head on your pillow tonight, do you know that if you don't wake up tomorrow, you'll wake up in eternity with Christ? Here's the second thing. It lives a surrendered life to the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, 25 to 26 says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, will bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. See, this surrender, it's an inward daily surrender. Daily allow the Holy Spirit to access your life. To surrender is a natural outgrowth of this abiding life. People ask me all the time, how did you get to a point when you had the world by the tail and you would leave all of that and go to a state that you don't know anybody and you don't know anything about it? How in the world can you possibly rip your family and all of those lifetime of roots and go there? Let me give you five things that guided our decision in that process. The first one is this. An abiding life has grown accustomed to hearing God speak and seeing him move. When you are walking with the Lord over a period of time, that's why Christian maturity is so important. When you are walking with him for a period of time, you get used to hearing him speak and seeing him move. And when you can identify that, listen, you can break any chain, you can break any plan, and you can go where God leads you to go. That is why your daily walk with Jesus is so important. Number two, confirmation through Scripture. We have family devotion. Um, probably you know, five nights a week, we'll have family devotion. We get around, we're working through a Robbie Gallaty Foundations book, and we'll read the Scripture. And one of the cool things that we do at night, we'll, we, say our, we read our passage, and we'll discuss things, and, and then I'll... I'll kneel at the boy's bed, and I'll pray for him, and I'll, I'll, then I'll say, Noah, tonight, what, what's the thing I say every night when we go to bed? Do you remember? Put him on the spot. I said, I love you, son. Tonight, I give you my blessing to be awesome. And I'll kiss him on the forehead. And I do that with all my kids. 
That's our family devotion because I want my boys and my daughter to grow up knowing to have, they have confidence in who Christ is because it's not who I am, it's who they are in Christ as a believer. It is helping them move towards spiritual maturity. Well, this scripture, we're having family devotion one night, right in the throes of all this, and I'm trying to make excuses, and every, every night we go to bed, I said, Elizabeth, baby, if you'll just tell me you don't want to go to Georgia, I will cut everything. We're moving in this house in a month. All you got to do is say you're not comfortable with it. You don't want to do it. We're done with it. And of course she wouldn't because she's more spiritual than I am. She's like, I think God's calling us to Georgia. And I'm like, you sure? <laughs> We're reading this passage of scripture, and you would know it would be what? Abraham and Isaac. Takes him to the altar. Are you willing to give up what is most important in your life? to fulfill the purposes of God. So we surrender. You see, it's an inward daily surrender. Here's the a third thing. was seek godly wisdom. My parents, high-capacity leaders in my life were part of that decision. Number four, see God's hand through markers in my life. I began to pray and say, God, help me see some pattern Are you, that you're leading me. This is so big, I can't mess this up. Make sure that, that I want to make sure that this is really you. And he, he pointed me to a ministry, a part-time ministry that went really well, but he gave me visions that I couldn't do there, so he led me to another church. And at that church, I was able to fulfill the vision of what he gave me at this previous church and went well, and the same thing happened. That overflowed into First Baptist Houghton, where it was, where we developed a disciple-making strategy and we're answering questions. And we went from connecting 26% of new members to 86%. Of new members. That is night and day difference. Where our people showed up at church not to sit and watch Gavin preach, but they showed up and there was a, a boisterous overflow of what God had been doing all week long. We didn't have to talk them into being excited. And we got to that point that prepared me to come here and share some of those same principles with one and a half million people. And did you know? God put me in charge of the Spark Conference, which used to be Go Georgia, the state's largest conference. We made it a national conference, so instead of having 1,200 people this year, we'll probably have 10,000 people. And all of those churches and all those people with fingers of ministry in China and Asia, all over the place, are now being in this process. Well, listen, can you see God's hand and mark on your life? And then the fifth one was prayer. And I told you how that worked. God reminded me of prayer that I prayed, and he said, you asked me, for a strategy that would be transferable, I gave it to you. You asked me to extend your borders of influence, and I'm doing it, and now it's time to go. See, it leads also to a daily outward serving. And here's what I would say to you, friends. You've got to get off this campus. The majority of lost people in your community are not inside this building. Most churches are setting up all of their outreach with a y'all come mentality. That ain't biblical. It is not biblical to set up a y'all come to our church mentality. The biblical prospect, the way that he has set that up is a y'all go into the community. You be the church in your situation, sharing Jesus and then getting them connected into the church. And here's a, a third thing. The abiding disciple pursues an un, uncommon commitment. You got to be willing to think and live beyond your borders. The disciples did it when they left everything and followed Jesus Jesus did it when he established a disciple-making model where he didn't just emphasize the large group experience because he spoke in the large group. 
and people began to understand and, and, and the Spirit of God was beginning to work in, in their lives. But he also emphasized the small group. But did you know that there was also an inner core group that Jesus had of Peter, James, and John? It was. There was an even smaller group of that three or four that Jesus even said things and did things with them that he didn't even do with the disciples, which would have been his small group. And did you know the most foundational layer of any disciple-making strategy has got to be your number, your daily walk with Jesus. That's where you are connected to the vine and grows towards spiritual maturity. See, Jesus thought like that. He created these transformational processes and emphasized this multiplication. Well, you've got to be willing to pivot. That's what I did when I left Louisiana and came to Georgia, and that's what I'm asking you to do now. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the craziest time in the life of American history, probably since World War II, you've got to be willing to pivot. When this church is able to reopen, when you're able to do things and gather here freely and get your Sunday schools going, whether it's online or face-to-face, -face, you have got to be willing to make the changes necessary to make a difference in the community God's called you to reach. And it is not about just getting them to come into this sanctuary. It is the people of God in this church going outside, reaching people, leading them to Jesus, building a relationship, and then connecting them into the church so that they can grow toward spiritual maturity. But Jesus did it too. He gave up everything for us. And I'll close with this thought. World War II, the largest amphibious attack that the world has ever known happened in Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. Well, the story's told some American soldiers. One of the comrades had died. They go to this little town, to this little church with this white picket fence grave. And so they go knock on the door. The priest comes to it and he says, hey, one of our buddies has been killed, we'd like to be able to bury him, a respectful burial, and we'd like to do it inside the grave, if that's okay with you. And he said, well, is he, is he Catholic? He said, no, he's not. He said, well, this graveyard is reserved for the Holy Roman Catholic Church. He said, I can't bury him there, but I can bury, bury him just on the outside of the fence by that big oak tree. And I give you my word, we'll, we'll care for his grave just like we do the rest of them. They agree, they buried him. They go back to the war. The war ends. Before they leave to go home, they decide, we want to say our last respects to our buddy. So they go back to this place. They knock on the door. Um, priest didn't come to the door, so they decide just to go on out. And they're looking just outside the fence. And they don't see the grave. And they're, they're beginning to get furious, thinking that, that they had taken the grave up or done away with a marker so they go back and they knock on that door and finally the priest comes to the door and they say, listen, we came back to, to say our last respects to our buddy, but he's not here. You said you were going to care for his grave. What have you done? The priest looked at him and he said, I didn't move the grave. I moved the fence to include the grave. You see, that's what Jesus has done for us. He has moved the fence to include us. And I want you to listen closely to me. And I realize most of you are believers in this place. And some of you that are watching 
by Facebook Live or on social media. You need to know that you have experienced a genuine conversion. Because the Bible says that we've all sinned, every one of us, and that we need a Savior, that those sins have to be forgiven and they've got to be washed away. You see, if you go through Romans and you read that, it teaches us that we're all sinners, that we need a Savior. And it says that Christ loved us so much that he died for us, that when his blood flowed at the cross and we trust Jesus as our Savior and ask him to forgive our sins, it is an all-in commitment we're giving our life to him. Have you done that? Have you experienced a genuine conversion? Wherever you are, watching, listening, or in this sanctuary, I'm going to ask you to bow your head just for a moment. And we're going to close this service. Now, we don't have a, a come-down um, invitation, but at the end of this service here, if you're in the building, there are going to be staff by these exits if you need to visit with them. Or if you're watching here, I want to I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, but you feel the Spirit of God working in there, maybe you're one of those like I was in those teenage years. I didn't know. Man, at 15 years old, if I'd have died, I, would, I didn't know if I'd have gone to heaven. Listen, if you're questioning that, or you're, you're uneasy about if you died, whether knowing you'd go to heaven or not, I'm going to ask you to consider this. If you need Jesus today, I'm going to pray a prayer, and you can pray this with me. Now listen, the words don't mean anything unless in the deep, deepest part of your heart you genuinely are asking Christ to forgive all your sins, take control of your life, and you're committing to live the rest of your days for him. If that's you, I want you to pray with this prayer with me. Say, Brother Scott, I'm in. And the prayer would be this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you came to this earth, lived a perfect life, was put in a grave as you gave your life on a cross. I believe the Bible when it says God raised you from the grave three days later, claiming victory over death, hell, sin, and Satan. And right now, Lord Jesus, I ask you, to take control of my life, to forgive all my sins, and I commit to live the rest of my days for you in this sanctuary. If you prayed that prayer or you need to talk with somebody, as soon as I say amen, I'm going to turn it over to Brother Will, and then as you leave, you can visit with one of the pastors in the foyer. If you're watching by social media, I want you to leave a comment in there. One of the staff will respond to that comment and they'll uh, walk through a process of helping you understand that decision. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to be here, to get in your word and to understand that it is the abiding life that knows that we're a believer that is moving ourselves and other people towards spiritual maturity. Father, for anybody in this building or anyone who's watching who's never trusted Jesus as Savior, if they made that decision or they need help in understanding that, God, may they take that step of leaving a comment in the chat bar or to talk with a, a staff in this place. And may you be glorified, God. And we thank you for the privilege and the freedom that it is to worship in this place in Jesus' name. Amen.